Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Pod. My name is Ray. I am your host. And today is Friday, August uh, August 14th. So it is time for food news. A quick programming note. Uh, it doesn't look like there's going to be a Parts Now Known episode on Wednesday, the upcoming Wednesday. Um, basically, just due to some scheduling issues, Ben's uh, got some stuff going on. I got some stuff going on. So it doesn't really look like we're going to be able to record the Libya podcast as we normally would this weekend. Uh, so probably what will happen is there's a wine podcast that we did last week, and I'll run that in the feed and then the following week uh there'll be two parts now known episodes both coming out on wednesday to kind of get us back on schedule back on track so you'll have libya and then the next one after that which is the peru episode so um those will both be coming out the following wednesday uh just right now i mean things could change but right now it's looking like that uh, we won't be recording an episode this weekend um just due to some uh, scheduling conflicts and, and travel and, and stuff like that. So, uh, just wanted to make everybody aware of that, but, uh, yeah, let's get into the, the food news for the past week here. Uh, a couple things just kind of on the TV front and that's really that all, all there is kind of globally. Um, so eater's guide to the world, it's going to be a kind of a seven part, TV show narrated by Maya Rudolph, who is probably going to wind up joining Saturday Night Live again because of her uh, Kamala Harris uh, impersonation that she does so well. Um, She's narrating it, but it's seven episodes, each one taking on a singular subject like uh, the best, you know, food for when you're on the go or traveling, um, dining destinations in kind of the wee hours of the morning, stuff like that. So I guess they filmed it in Casablanca, Tijuana, New York City, Costa Rica, Los Angeles, Miami, D.C., Atlanta, and they put down the Pacific Northwest, so I'm assuming that's Seattle, Vancouver, Portland, somewhere in there. Maybe it's just not in any of the cities and somewhere in like the states themselves, so like smaller towns, and maybe that's why they just put the region. I'm not entirely sure, but... So that was kind of something of note to mention. Uh, Taste the Nation, which is that Padma Lakshmi show on Hulu. I haven't watched it. I have no interest. I'm not a big fan of hers. Uh, Kind of just tolerate her on Top Chef as a host Um, from what I've seen and everything. And like I I mentioned before, I mean, she's got like, I think, a cookbook or two. And she is really big into um, immigrant advocacy. Um, because she's an immigrant herself uh, of Indian uh, descent. But her uh, Hulu show was renewed for a second season, Um, so that'll probably come out sometime next year, I would imagine, filming probably this fall if they can work around kind of the coronavirus stuff. And then Hulu also has two shows coming from David Chang. One is with Chrissy Teigen, who I'm also not a fan of. I just think that she... Every week she has to do something online to keep like her name relevant. Like you can pretty much just mark it down by clockwork that uh, she's going to do something. I think this past week it was like her pregnancy announcement. But before that it was like, you know, she would comment on something and, you know, then get leaked to all the press outlets and stuff. I'm just not a big fan of hers. Um, But she's got some show with, with Dave Chang that they're doing together. And then he has another show with Hulu 
um, that he's doing with Morgan Nelville, who is one of the producers of Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown. And I think Morgan actually also did some stuff with uh, No Reservations, too, as well. But So that's coming out sometime in the fall. It sounds like both... It sounds like maybe the one with Chrissy Teigen is going to be like September, October, and then the other one will be November. Um, no word on if they're going to do a third season of Ugly Delicious. I'm not sure. It, this kind of deal that Chang has with uh, Hulu and doing some food programming for them might might derail that. I'm not sure. So, um, But, like, I mean, he can't do any filming for that right now anyways because there's no travel really. Um, and plus he has a, a newborn son. I shouldn't say, I mean, newborn, but I mean, it's definitely under a year, uh, for, I think Hugo is the baby's name. So it's not like he's trying to go into any coronavirus hotspots either. So all this stuff was already filmed. So it's just coming out. Um, so yeah, we'll see, but that was kind of it for the, the global news. A couple things on kind of the national scale. So there was another recall last week. There was a recall for onions this week, there's a recall for lemons, limes, oranges, and potatoes due to potential uh, listeria. So I guess the FDA found listeria on a piece of equipment that was used to produ- process produce at Fresh House, uh, Fresh House 2 LLC, which is somewhere in the south, um, the processing plant there. So it made its way from there to... There for sure, no, it made its way to North Carolina, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland. And that was before they even found the listeria on the piece of equipment. So it could have made it to other states. So they're doing recalls on that. I just threw out, the other day, I threw out three limes that my wife had that she brought back from camping. Um, just because it's possible that they all fall in that listeria range too as well. So um yeah, go online, check that out. Uh, it'll tell you a little bit more, but that was kind of the overview of it. Just there's recalls on all that stuff. So um, be careful with the with the produce that you're buying. And uh, most grocery stores don't even list like where they get it from. It just all kind of goes into a batch. But I guess, I guess you try and figure out where Fresh House exactly is and if they have multiple plants, what states, and then try and get produce from a state that they're not in processing so then maybe you know that reduces your chances but that's just the way i would approach it uh i guess there's a shortage of dr pepper i guess fans of the drink were hoarding it because of the pandemic so now there's a shortage of it i saw that kind of highlight thought that was weird i don't like dr pepper Uh, my sister drinks it i think my wife will drink it here or there but she's not really big on on soda um but yeah i'm not i've never been a fan of that or mr pib or anything so doesn't really affect me, but uh, just in case anybody is really concerned about why they can't find Dr. Pepper on shelves and in vending machines, um, there's your reasoning. And the last bit of news was, uh, so there was that explosion in Beirut, which they think was caused by uh, fertilizer being improperly stored in a warehouse for like years. Uh, I guess some, the way I heard it was there was a Russian businessman who had it. He was bringing it in. It didn't make it through like the custom checks or the business that he was supposed to be delivering it to like went under. So nobody was able to pay him for it and he wasn't going to return it back because that would have cost too much money. So he just left it there. Nobody ever did anything with it. And then uh, I think there was a like a fire broke out 
in a neighboring building that had like fireworks and then that ignited um essentially the fertilizer compound and then that created the giant explosion that looked like somebody just detonated like a semi-truck full of c4 uh based on the video but so a lot of stuff was damaged i think i mean there was at least like 30 people died it's probably a little bit higher than that but uh, it was in their port area of the city and beirut's had a bunch of issues with you know terrorist attacks and stuff like that too as well it used to actually be uh like a almost like a paradise destination for people to go and and visit like a tourist destination back i think it was in the 70s before they started having um, stuff break out so anyways there's a restaurant there called the chef and it was basically the only restaurant filmed in the beirut episode uh, that anthony bourdain did on no reservations back in 2006 when they were there filming and then the war broke out i think it was israel and hezbollah um, so they were bombing the city and they were stuck in the hotel and they actually got evacuated by the Marines along with a bunch of other foreigners that were kind of trapped in the city because of the bombing and they couldn't get out and, and you didn't want to try and leave the city either. Cause you didn't know who was guarding kind of the exit points, if they were friend or foe. And, and then if they were foe, if you'd be kidnapped or killed or whatever. So it was a pretty dangerous situation. I think the episode actually won like an Emmy, uh, for it as well. Um, for the production and everything since they were basically just like let's just keep the cameras rolling because um, you know nobody else really has this kind of inside look and we're already here and um, we can't do anything else so at least kind of document as much as they could but that restaurant was damaged um, I guess the windows were broken out by the explosion and then I think there was some electrical issues too that they encountered so uh, Russell Crowe the actor donated uh, five grand um, there was a GoFundMe for the restaurant that was up, and they only needed, I think, like a couple thousand bucks that they were trying to raise, but Russell Crowe basically got them there, um, donated five grand, basically, he just did it, and then people were wondering, like, is it that Russell Crowe or whatever? So then he came out and released a statement just saying he did it on behalf of Anthony Bourdain, it's something that he thought Bourdain would do, since that was a restaurant that um, Bourdain was a big fan of, uh, especially the times that he visited Beirut, so... That was a pretty cool piece of news. Um, you know, Russell Crowe's still out there, still working. So he just did, uh, he's got some horror movie coming out where he's like a road rage guy. That's supposed to come out, I think, video on demand. He just did that Showtime uh, show about where he was Roger Ailes. Uh, he's pretty good in that. And I think um, he has something else coming out too. I can't remember that was in the news. But so he's he's still around. He's still doing stuff. Um, but that was kind of it for the, the national news. There wasn't, wasn't too much going on. Um, it's kind of a slow news week. I mean, there's some stories, but there's just kind of one here or there. So we'll just, we'll just run through them city by city as I normally do. Actually going to start this week. Uh, we'll start in Chicago this week. So the first story coming out, um, has to do with this restaurant called Pacific Standard Time. It's, it's not too old. It's a restaurant by one-off hospitality group and they owned or they own a bunch of different restaurants in the city um a bunch of notable ones too i mean they have michelin stars i think blackbird uh the restaurant that was around for like 20 30 years that closed they were part of that group too but uh so this restaurant is pretty much owned by them but then there was like a side uh deal um with a, a chef and another partner 
so it all kind of came together. So it was almost like two groups kind of merging together to open this restaurant. So the partners, uh, which were Josh Tilden, who's just, you know, a regular business investor, and then um, the chef, Erling Wu Bauer, they both announced their departures this week uh, formally, but they actually left over, according to reports from one-off hospitality, they left over a month ago. And employees were asking because they were kind of left in limbo and, and the employees are pretty much upset about how things are being handled in the pandemic and communication. Um, and kind of what happened was uh, Bauer, who's now being replaced by Avec, uh, Avec chef Perry Hendricks, who has been there at Avec for seven years. Uh, we actually ate there. It's okay. It's like a Mediterranean kind of restaurant, but it's it's like modern Mediterranean. Uh, we ate there when we were in Chicago, twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen. I mean, it's at least two years ago that we ate there. But um, so. Let me back up. So there's 68 current and former workers so far have expressed frustration with one-off hospitality due to their inconsistent and alarming working conditions during the pandemic. So it's stuff like staff-wide pay cuts, reduced hours, um, benefits freezes, understaffing uh, too as well, uh, a whole bunch of stuff like that too. Like it's not even really even getting into the PPE stuff, which they kind of... I think there's some small issues with too as well. So they were told, the workers were told that Tilden and Erling um, had been absent for, you know, several weeks just because of scheduled vacations. There was a family emergency, all this stuff. But as it turns out, they left actually back in March. They left the restaurant. And I guess there's some sort of unspecified legal agreement. I got to imagine it has to do with probably profit sharing um, an ownership or like a divestment of ownership stake for the other two, which I would imagine is kind of the, the legal agreement. And so they didn't tell anyone because of that. And they also didn't feel that it was right since they were no longer working for the restaurant or working at the restaurant to comment on the workers complaints since they weren't involved anymore. And the complaints came out, you know, months after that they already had left. Um, some people started noticing like they weren't around and they're like, they've been gone for like a month. Like what's going on? And so when, uh, Paul Cahan, who's kind of one of the partners in one off hospitality, he, I think originally told, uh, kind of the press that they left last month, like in June. But then he did an interview with the Chicago tribune and acknowledged that they both left uh, back in March and they just didn't tell anybody because of the, the legal agreement. So it's just kind of weird. They're just doing weird stuff. They're operating very strangely. They're not communicating with employees. And that's kind of why employees are upset. And they're like, you know, you're doing all this stuff. Obviously, it's trying to keep the the restaurant afloat. But also some of it's probably so they can, you know, recruit profits and everything like that too as well. But, you know, th- from the employee's perspective, it's like, okay, the two people that like, I enjoyed working with her no longer here. Nobody told me. And now you're doing all this other stuff where it's like you're cutting hours. Benefits are frozen. We don't have enough staff, but we're still open. You know, you want me to take a pay cut to help the restaurant and all this stuff. And it's just like, no, like I was just going on employment. So 
that's kind of the situation with that restaurant, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. It's just kind of all this. And that's kind of the theme for the week is there's a lot of like maneuvering in like restaurants and stuff like that. It's not super shady, but it's just everybody's starting to kind of look around and go, oh, um, I need to take care of myself now. I've been trying to take care of other people, but now like the time has come where I need to watch out for me. And that's kind of starting to come out a little bit more within the industry, it seems like, based on some of these stories. So I don't think there'll be any more on Pacific Standard Time unless they have like a formal closure or something. But if there is, uh, we'll mention it on a future podcast. Uh, Staying in Chicago, so Rainforest Cafe uh, closed a year earlier than expected. It was basically just due to the coronavirus shutdown. They were going to close next year, I think when their lease ran out, and um, the guy, the developer who owns the the property that the restaurant sits on, uh, he said it's going to be turned into like a retail space or demolished and turned into a high-rise property. Um, he, uh, I guess he negotiated in kind of like their lease extension that once they officially close, like he would get, uh, he would get the gorilla. I think it's like an animatronic gorilla for the restaurant. So he's keeping that. I don't know if he's going to incorporate that into the new development or not. And that'd be kind of funny, but, um, yeah, they were going to close next year. It's been in operation for 23 years in the city. It's owned by Darden and, uh, yeah, they just, they've been closed since March and they're not going to reopen. So they just decided, you know, we'll call it quits now on the property, get out of the lease a year early and, and not have to deal with all the stuff and, and just kind of wash our hands of it and be done with it. So, uh, I guess they were taking down like all the signage and stuff this week. And I think there's a really big sign. So they look like from the photo I saw, they were loading it onto like a, almost like a flatbed, um, flatbed kind of trailer, uh, that a semi would pull. Uh, so that was kind of, I, I, I've been to a rainforest cafe. It was in like Orlando, I think when we went to like Disney world, but I don't, I don't really, I mean, there's some still around, I guess. I don't know where. I think that's one of the last ones. Um, there's not too many of them around, I don't think, still. There might still be one at Disney. I'm not sure. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of like this famous brand where it's like you're eating in a jungle. Like, it's all decked out in, like, jungle decor. And then there's, you know, parrots and birds squeaking over kind of the speakers that they have hidden in the tr- fake trees. And, um I think they have like fish tanks kind of around. I think there actually are real parrots in cages too. Um, I'm trying to think what else. There's like animatronic, like, you know, monkeys and stuff that would pop out of bushes. And, and the whole thing was like, uh, I mean, it's all like, it's all pretty much American food. You know, they had burgers and stuff on there, but it's supposed to be kind of themed. Like, you know, you're in a jungle. So the big, Big hit with kids, I believe, was kind of like their their bread and butter target audience. But uh, Liz Sardine, which is a 23-year-old uh, dining institution in the West Loop, that has closed. Uh, the AC in the building went out, and the restaurant doesn't own the building. So they had, I guess it was going to cost like 80 grand to fix. And uh, Oliver Palivi, who's basically the owner of the restaurant now, uh, he took it over from his parents' Uh, his parents started it and his dad died in a car accident in 2016. And then his mom just passed away of natural causes three years later, I guess. Um, 
he's, you know, owning or running the restaurant and he had to shut it down. Just he was in negotiations with the landlord and they wouldn't fix the AC. They didn't want to take on the 80 grand payment to fix it. And the restaurant didn't have any money to do it. So that's the end of the restaurant. And, um, yeah, it kind of sucks. Like, you know, your parents start this restaurant, you take it over and, you know, you don't own the building. So it's, you're still beholden to somebody else to kind of fix stuff in a pandemic. Nobody wants to do anything because everybody's worried about, you know, their profits and their, their bottom line and everything. So no one's gonna, you know, spend 80 K to keep a restaurant there. That's possibly not going to be open really aside from takeout through the rest of the year. I get it on both sides. It's just, you know, it's just kind of a shitty situation. So, uh, but some more positive news, uh, munchies, which is this like uh, novelty candy cereal store cafe thing um, that opened this past week. So it's off of West 95th street. Uh, Kiana Allen, who I guess she has a separate business called cultures closet, which is like a women's clothing store. Um, she opened it kind of, it was inspired by her two sons who eat just a bunch of cereal apparently. Um, so there's like 33 different types of cereal. Like I said, the novelty candy, they have, you know, milkshakes where they incorporate cereal too as well. So that opened, uh, seems like kind of a running theme. I mean, I know I usually mention it on this podcast. I mean, there was the ones in London that closed and I think one in like Vegas that's opening kind of similar. Um, it just seems like an interesting concept. Like I'd, I'd totally be down to go to one and, and try it out and see, you know, 33 types of cereals seems like a lot, but I mean, that's pretty much everything in like the grocery aisle, I would imagine. So, um, but it's definitely be interesting to see like foreign types of cereal like the types of cereal they have in you know canada or any other like country just because it's going to differ a little bit at least and and also like you know cereal is a pretty american thing i feel like it's a pretty western thing i don't get the impression that there's a whole lot of other uh a whole lot of other countries that are eating cereal for breakfast i think that's kind of an american thing so um would just be cool to check out, you know, but, uh, Rob Shaner, uh, he opened, I guess this was a highly anticipated restaurant in the city. He opened, uh, Robert a Um, so he's just going to do takeout. It's a takeout family style menu, but he's French trained. So it's going to be kind of more upscale French, I believe. From what I could tell, um, it's basically weaving classic French gastronomy with modern techniques. So that's going to be, um, once that opens for like dine-in service, like it'll be kind of more upscale. But it was announced actually back in December. Uh, it was supposed to open in March. Then it got delayed due to coronavirus. And then now it's just to the point where they're like, we're just going to open. We'll do takeout. So uh, it's going to be a regularly changing menu. Uh, it's like an $80 menu for two. Thursdays through Saturdays is when they're open, you know, for and orders have to be placed uh, at least 48 hours in advance through talk, uh, the reservation system. And um, yeah, it just kind of seems like a cool concept. It seems very almost like old school. Like there's a lot of kind of sauce work in the pan, like in the pan, the whole pan gets brought out to the table and stuff like that. So it's kind of like a throwback a little bit too as well, but it's still modern. Um, I guess the name for the uh, restaurant uh, is a tribute to his father, 
uh, Bob who died back in 2008. But I guess in the 90s, uh, the whole family moved to Paris for a few years, kind of in the middle of the 90s. And that's where um, Shaner first encountered kind of French cuisine. And that always kind of stuck with him and is kind of what got him into the culinary industry. So it was just a cool story. Um, seems like a pretty cool restaurant too as well. So hopefully they, they can make it through the rest of the pandemic and then open for dine-in service and, and get to doing what they wanted to do. And the last bit of news out of Chicago. Um, so Claudio Velez uh, is this guy's name, but he's more known as the tamale guy. And for like 20 years, he's been serving and cooking and serving and running a tamale business out of his own home. So he finally was able to open uh, an actual like restaurant, like a proper restaurant with all the licensing and all that stuff. And um, so, yeah, that opened this past week and like they sold out of all the tamales by like noon on the first day. So he's going to be pretty busy for a while. It's kind of it started off from what I could tell kind of one of those underground things where you almost, the only way you kind of found out about it was word of mouth. Like you had to know somebody who, and not know somebody to get in line, but know somebody who went there and they would, you know, be like, Hey, you should go check this place out. You didn't need to like know somebody to go stand in line or anything. It wasn't like one of those, but, um, you know, he had his family helping, you know, make tamales and stuff daily. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it was he was running out of his home because of kind of some legal issue with paperwork, you know, if there was a green card issue or not. The article didn't really say. I would I would as kind of assume that that was probably the initial reason why he started out of his own home just cuz he didn't have probably the funds or kind of the necessary paperwork in order to open his own restaurant, but it sounds like he eventually got there and and um yeah, now you can go visit uh the tamale guy's restaurant. So if you've never had it uh, in Chicago, I've never had it. I've had tamales. Um, most of the time when they're done by somebody who knows what they're doing, which in this case is him. Um, they're fantastic, but, and they're still good the second day, but it's not the same. Like it's kind of a, a day of thing that you really want to eat them. Um, I've had them, you know, once or twice, and they've been amazing, but I guess they're pretty labor intensive too as well. I mean, you kind of almost need like an assembly line of people um, to do them. So that was uh, the last bit of news, but a positive story out of Chicago. And uh, moving over to some stories out of New York City. So I guess Michelin inspectors have started making the rounds in New York City again for the uh, the guide, which will be, is normally released, uh, I think the New York one kind of comes out in November, is kind of the time frame for them. They're one of the last ones, usually like DC and Chicago are first, and then I think it's them, and then San Francisco was how it was last year, if I remember correctly. But they start like end of September is like the DC one, and then Chicago is like October, and then they do either San Francisco or New York City pretty much like a week or two after that. And then the next one right before it. So really it's like late October, early November is when the three big ones come out. I mean, DC's um, DC's just a bit smaller market. I think there's only somewhere between 15 and 20 restaurants that are in that guide across all three stars. 
Chicago has more, but they've been losing a bunch of restaurants too. So no, but like the article goes into it and it's just, nobody really knows what to make of it. Cause like a lot of the restaurants are closed. So by the letter of the law with the guide, the restaurants that are closed should actually lose their stars and be removed from the guide this year because they're not open. So they can't be, uh, quote unquote inspected, um, by the reviewers and some have pivoted to takeout and takeout's completely different than dining in an actual restaurant. It could be the same food, but the quality is way different. And then some are, you know, have reopened, but they're outside on the patio because of outdoor dining and COVID and all that stuff. And that's a different experience too, as well in terms of service, because it takes longer for somebody to get from the kitchen to outside and it's a different rotation and, and all that stuff too, as well. Then plus like, some restaurants, you know, you, you get like a two hour window to eat your meal and then it's, and nobody's throwing anybody out of a restaurant, uh, out of a restaurant if they're like past the two hour mark, but restaurant restaurants are spacing it out. So they have time to clean and turn over and then, you know, seat the next group in a safe way. So everybody's kind of a little confused as to like why they're like inspecting restaurants. Cause I, I think out of the five, three stars, like Per Se is closed. Um, Le Bernardin and 11 Madison Park are commissary kitchens for um, just doing like meals, like donation meals. And then Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair, I think is closed. And it's the other three star one. And Moss is doing like takeout. Like, I don't even think Moss is open for in, in dining. I'm sure you could like rent out the restaurant, which would be incredibly expensive and doesn't make any sense financially. But, um, so yeah, it's kind of weird. And then, you know, I think the one, I think it was Daniel Blue said in the article, he's like, they'll probably come up with like some sort of like takeout designation or something like that. But yeah, it's going to be really weird because how strict they are with their rules and regulations in theory per se 11 Madison park, Le Bernardin all should lose their stars if they're not actually open to the public and, and seating people inside. So, and even Masa should, if it's just doing takeout along, like all five of those should actually lose their stars. So it'll be interesting to kind of see what happens. I mean, look, the Michelin guide is, and I'll, do this on a future podcast a little bit more in depth, but it's a good barometer for the few major cities that it's in, in the U S it definitely helps with when you go overseas and kind of doing some restaurant research too, as well. Um, but it's not the end all be all. It's kind of a big deal for chefs. If they, they get a star, especially two or three, um, a lot of places get one and then just kind of fall off, but two or three is kind of a big deal. But it's a lot of pressure to keep those stars, you know, it, and it's a lot of tasty menu format, kind of fine dining, um, and then French or Japanese style cuisine are pretty much the lane that that guide is in. So you have to use it with a grain of salt because, you know, when you get to the three-star restaurants, they're going to be super expensive to go to. Um, and it, it's all kind of the same I don't want to say it's all the same style, but there's just not a whole lot of un uniqueness almost like 
in that world, you get to a point where you can pretty much figure out, you might not know exactly everything that you're getting, but you can figure out like the progression of, you know, cold appetizer, caviar, salad, something that's bird, duck or chicken or, or whatever. Foie gras will probably be on there. Uh, there'll probably be like a pasta, truffles, a Wagyu or a Wagyu option will be on there too as well. There'll probably be two or three desserts. There's a palate cleanser. There's probably a bread course in there. There might be a cheese course depending on the restaurant style. Um, so you can, you know, it's kind of scripted out. So where it's a little bit different with like somebody like Masa where it's sushi um, but the barrier to entry to, to Masa is so high and like every couple of years it continues to to increase in price because of the price of fish and flying all that stuff in from Japan and everything. So, um, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. It'll be kind of interesting to see when the guides start coming out late September, what happens or if they postpone stuff or, or what. So, um, I'm curious, but, uh, kind of staying in that vein, as I mentioned per se. Uh, so Thomas Keller, he had announced this week that he permanently closed, uh, both his Hudson yard, restaurants, which is a Bouchon bakery location and also the TAK room. No word on, he was scheduled to open another TAK room in Vegas. I don't know if that's still happening, but he basically said that, um, you know, there's no tourism. Tourism probably won't come back until 2021 in the spring at the soonest at this point, because we're just too late in the season now for, you know, people to, to have confidence in traveling and then also have the funds to travel and spend, you know, excess money when they're not worried about getting laid off or anything. So there's just not a whole lot of consumer confidence and their sales and stuff were down and the rents super high because it's Hudson Yards. It's in a new complex. And, um, yeah, so he closed, closed both those on Wednesday, which is pretty surprising because they'd only been open for like a little over a year. And, um, there's kind of mixed reviews on the TAK room. I know some of the critics were like, it's very similar to a surf club restaurant in Miami. I guess the menu was, and some of it was pretty ridiculously priced. Um, and that was probably because of how high their rent was. And there was a lot of table side preparation, you know, the table side Caesar salad and, and stuff like that um, was what they were, they were kind of going for, I guess like an, almost like a throwback fine dining upscale feel, but with a modern aesthetic kind of thing. And, um, yeah, it, it had mixed bag reviews. Um, I don't, I don't think I would have gone to it visiting New York. Uh, I mean, we don't really have any plans to go to New York anytime soon. We kind of been there a couple years in a row, but yeah, I just, I don't think that would have made the cut on my next New York trip. It, it just wasn't super exciting. You know, I've been to per se in the French laundry, which are very similar. I mean, they're sister restaurants, Bouchon, and then, you know, a Bouchon bakery too, as well. So they're all very good, but, um, I think where he's at in his, this point of his career, stuff's going to be a little bit more formulaic and it's not going to be as exciting or revolutionary as, people kind of attribute those characteristics to him because of how important the French laundry was when it opened back in kind of the early to mid nineties. So that was kind of the, I mean, that's 
maybe the biggest New York restaurant closure so far due to the pandemic. So it's pretty big deal. And that just tells you where, you know, here's this successful restaurateur and chef who opened this, you know, destination restaurant almost like a year ago. And he's closing because it, he can't see how it's going to work for another eight months. It's kind of crazy when you think about it that way. So another, uh, I think that was it actually for closures out of New York. There's kind of the main stuff. So, Oh no, hold on. There's a couple others. Um, so Michelin starred restaurant. It's actually a Thai restaurant called uncle Boone's, uh, that is closed after seven years. Basically, the owners, uh, Ann Redding and Matt Danzer, who ironically first met when they were both working at Per Se, um, they couldn't come to an agreement with their landlord. Um, so they wound up closing. I guess um, they still have the other restaurants. So there's Uncle Boone's sister and then uh, also Thai Diner. But, um, you know, New York Times critic Pete Wells back in 2013 gave uncle Boone's two stars in his review. New York times goes up to four. Um, two's pretty good for somebody that's not expecting any stars. It's bad if like you're going into it and it's like, this is supposed to be a four star place. But like when they open uncle Boone's, like they weren't thinking that they would ever really get reviewed by the New York times. So, um, people loved it. I mean, Michelin gave it a star in, in 2015 and they've had it ever since. But, um, but yeah, they just weren't able to work something out with their landlord, so that has closed. Uh, I think Uncle Boone's sister is open for takeout, though, in New York. And uh, I think Thai Diner might be doing takeout as well, according to the article. But uh, another closure is um, it's this oyster bar called uh, Mason Premier. It's over in Williamsburg near Brooklyn. They've closed. Uh, it's actually a James Beard award-winning uh, restaurant. The, I guess it's also speculated that the sister restaurant to that, Sauvage, has uh, also gone o- under. Um, Sauvage apparently converted to a retail wine shop in mid-March when the start of the pandemic happened. But um, the owners, Christo Zizika and Joshua Bossi, I guess back in 2019, they filed for Chapter 11, I guess they owed just a shit ton of money to like, I mean, the article said millions of dollars to uh, banks, vendors, other creditors, probably for like equipment and stuff like that. I'm not sure how they got into such, it didn't really go into like how they got into that financial trouble, um, which is substantial, but I mean, maybe that's not unrealistic for a New York restaurant to run up a tab that high just because of how expensive everything is there. Um, but I guess it was like, it was inspired by New Orleans. It was one of the city's best, you know, raw bars. It was open for 10 years, um, but that has closed. So, and the only little bit of kind of positive news coming out of New York, uh, Strange Ways, which is a 90 seat, essentially backyard restaurant, also in Williamsburg. Um, I guess it's by Ken Addington, who's the uh, the chef owner. Uh, he opened that. So, it kind of looks like it almost looks it's picnic tables and it kind of looks like uh half a greenhouse on kind of the one side so you have like the slanted clear roof and then the side and then the other side looked open from the photo i could tell so it looks like an interesting kind of situation 
Um, it's going to be like elevated pub fare and, and they'll have brunch, I guess on the weekends too as well. But um, I thought it was interesting just because that seems like if anybody has any sort of space, they're probably going to be doing a lot of open air concept type stuff. So I think you're going to start seeing any sort of moving forward, any restaurants trying to come up with a way that they can have either large windows that they can open in the summertime, like garage bay doors or, or something. Um, so they can kind of create an outdoor dining situation. That's, you know, still got some, some covering in case of inclement weather. Um, and then that way they can close it back up in the winter and retain heat. So I think that's going to be the new model going forward with a lot of places um, as they get designed. So I think you'll see that over the next couple of years, but it was somebody who was able to, this didn't sound like the original plan to have kind of this setup um, with kind of the half in half out situation. So it, it sounds like that was a little bit of a pivot, um, you know, a few months back, but uh, pretty interesting. I thought so. And that was it for New York this week. Um, Let's move over to DC. We'll do DC next here. So a couple stories out of DC. Um, the main one, and I know I mentioned Bros's uh, restaurant group last week just because of all their kind of internal issues, but they had a lawsuit against their insurance company. So they had a policy that was supposed to protect them in case of business interruption. And they were suing um, just so they could claim on that policy. But a D.C. Superior Court judge ruled in favor of the insurance company, which has happened in most of these uh, lawsuits that have actually kind of gone through the process. I think there was one in Michigan a couple weeks back. Um, I know there's one going on in, out in California in like the San Francisco area, and I don't know how that's going. That one was kind of backed by Thomas Keller. But basically, the judge said that um, – can't trigger the policy because there's no direct physical loss. The loss was, you know, monetary and, you know, people had to be like, but like it was not emotional loss, but like there was no damage. Like, you know, you didn't lose. It wasn't like you lost power and then lost, you know, a hundred thousand dollars worth of ingredients and, and produce and stuff like that. It was, yeah, you had to shut down because of a pandemic. Everybody had to shut down. So everybody lost, like, I, I don't know. I'm not a legal expert. Um, it's just, it seems to be pretty frustrating. And I can only imagine for, for people that are dealing with insurance companies because you pay all these premiums and, and you have these big policies, especially when you're a restaurant, if you have multiple locations too as well. And you're paying all this money and you never get anything for it. Like if your restaurant burned down, the insurance company is going to try and find a way to skate on that too. And be like, well, the fire, uh, wasn't of, you know, natural causes. So we don't cover that. Or like there's all this fine point in every single policy and it's just them creating loopholes so that they can kind of get out of stuff without having to pay. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think, I don't, I don't know if you can legally operate a restaurant without insurance. Um, and it might not be, you know, smart to do either. But like if the company is never going to pay out and if they're not going to pay out in the middle of a pandemic, they're not going to pay like they're not going to ever try and pay out for anything. So 
would you just be better off just letting your policy lapse? Like if you don't need an insurance policy so you can have, you know, your, your food service license and your alcohol license, then maybe, you know, maybe you just own the building and, um, whatever happens happens from there. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's something that, you know, is probably a better question for somebody in the industry. Uh, I'm just thinking out loud on it, but that's just kind of the way that I'm looking at it. Is like, if I had a restaurant, you know, I might just let my policy lapse, especially, I mean, especially if you're closed or you're in a hot spot now, like I wouldn't be paying on that. And you know what, that would be the last thing that I would pay on would be the insurance policy. Because like they're not gonna pay any like somebody loots your restaurant like they're not gonna pay for any of that shit anyways. So, but um, yeah, it doesn't seem like any of that stuff's going in favor of any of the restaurants or restaurateurs, which not really a surprise, but it's just kind of another. It's just another kick in the stomach, you know. They can't get any help from the government. They're not probably gonna get any help from the government, and um, yeah, they're just kind of kind of being forgotten about and uh you know nobody nobody really cares unless they have money in it which is all you know kind of the corporate chains like the the government will definitely bail them out because all those people are invested in those but they're not invested in mom and pop shops so they don't really care if those go under which is essentially you know what you can boil it down to so just more reason to probably vote anybody who's already in there out in terms of any representation on either side really i was thinking about that kind of the other day And it's like, you really should just go in, you know, don't even rely on mail-in voting since that whole thing is becoming an issue. With them trying to, well, it's really Trump trying to manipulate it so the post office doesn't operate super, doesn't operate efficiently so they can't process ballots and a lot of them just get kind of left in a box somewhere. Um, So just, go, you know, we're all just going to have to go and vote in person just to avoid that. Like, you're better off or... Like you need to vote now, you know, absentee ballot or whatever, but you're better off doing early in-person early voting. Hopefully some of these places will open, you know, the polling stations sooner, but I, I think it's state by state as to how early they can kind of open that stuff up. So, um, but yeah, vote as soon as you can, I guess. And, you know, I'm probably going to vote. I'm going to look up uh, who is like the incumbent and then I'm going to vote probably vote them out um definitely be voting out more republicans i mean ohio here is it's republican controlled so definitely be voting against them more so than any democrats but we have some democrats that just they don't do anything and it's like you get you know uh what's her face uh elon omar who she just got reelected in minnesota she's the uh, somali congresswoman um i think she's like the first somali to be elected to uh, either chamber of U.S. Congress. But, you know, she had some not great things to say about Israel and and Jewish people and stuff, um, which I can't remember exactly everything she said, so I don't really want... I'm not going to look it up either. But, uh, but she got reelected, and it's like... You know, she'll post, I don't follow her on Twitter, but it'll like get retweeted by people and stuff and it'll kind of come up and it's like, you know, it'll be something in response to like something that Trump did or whatever. And it'll be just something like super generic, like, 
you know, we got to do better to help, uh, you know, help the small businesses. It's like, yeah. So what are you actually doing? Instead of you tweeting that out, like that's your stance, like actually go do something like put some sort of legislature, you know, go work on a bill or something. Like don't just sit there and tweet be like, Oh, we should do this. Cool. Your job is to actually go do it. Not give us ideas where the idea group, the people are, you're supposed to execute that stuff. So, you know, that stuff is kind of, I don't know. It just, it, it just, they don't care. Like unless they're super invested in it or they're going to make money off of it. You know, it's all just kind of a giant publicity game, even for the new people that are, that are getting into as well. So it'll, it'll slowly come out, give it some time. But that was the politics segment of the podcast here. Uh, going back into DC though, Chef Darren Norris, who I've mentioned a couple times, uh, he's open in that multi-level kind of Japanese uh, concept facility in Adams Morgan. He just opened the, the second part, which is Death Punch. It's on the top floor. Uh, it's basically a cocktail bar. Um, it's dimly lit drinking den is what he called it in the press release. But um, So the cocktails will pair with the street food that's at the, the bottom of the complex. Uh, that's technically, I think, actually underground. Like I think it's you have to go down some stairs. It's almost like in a basement type situation. That's called uh, Shibuya Eatery. Um, but the, the bar itself, the death punch there, that's going to be headed up by a uh, mixologist, bartender. I don't even know the proper term, but uh, his name's Jeremy Wetmore. And I guess he's pretty notable uh, from around the area. And then next month uh shabu plus will be kind of the upscale fine dining type uh restaurant that's going to be in the middle floor that's going to open next month um officially i think they're just wrapping up kind of i think they're done with construction they're just wrapping up like installation and and getting everything kind of set up and coordinated before they open so sounds like a really cool thing i added you know to my list to check out next time we're back in dc um adams morgan's also where like tail up goat is Reveler's Hour, uh, that's the same group that owns that. I've been to Tail of Goat. It's pretty cool. Um, good food, good good lunch spot too as well for them. So it'll be interesting to check out uh, this kind of three-level Japanese complex that uh, this guy developed. And then the last bit of news out of D.C. Um, so... This brewery called Other Half Brewing, um, they're actually out of Brooklyn, New York, but they're going to open a 22,000 square foot tap room and production facility in Ivy City, which is like a kind of suburb, just not too far away from D.C. Uh, it's going to open this fall. 5,000 of its square feet will be for the tasting and tap room, and then 7,500 will be for an outdoor space, which is going to be made up of a patio-covered pavilion, and there's also a roof deck. I guess they're converting uh, the former Papa's Tomato Factory building into kind of their brewery. So it sounds pretty cool. Uh, it reminds me a lot of kind of these big brewery operations. Like out here we have Brew Dogs, which has this massive complex they built down in Canal Winchester, which is like 20 to 30 minutes from downtown Columbus. Um, and then they have like smaller facilities. They have one in the short north. They have one in Franklinton. But like, they have some brewing on site, but there's, you know, pretty basic bar food component. And then they also have the one in Franklinton has like a roof deck. 
And the one in Short North, I think, just has like a patio area in back. But their beer is pretty good. Um, so, yeah, it just kind of reminds me of kind of these bigger breweries that are not notorious, but a lot of them gravitate towards like sprawling complexes, like outdoor areas. Like they just want to put, you know, different little games and stuff in there. Just anything to keep you kind of it's all about retaining people that come. So. Yes, you want to have good beer and some good food, but you also want people to have multiple beers when they come and not just come and have one beer and leave. So that's why you put all this other shit in there. So it's all about keeping them in kind of your closed circle environment kind of thing. So it's just a business strategy. But um, yeah, it sounds like a pretty cool thing. So that was it out of uh, D.C. this week. Uh, Over in Texas, a couple stories came out. So Whataburger, which is... uh, it's like a southern burger chain. It's really prominent in the south. Uh, I guess they're going, they built a food truck. Uh, they had a company in San Antonio do it. And so it's going to be a roaming food truck. It'll go across the south. It's mainly going to go to um, destinations and be there for a couple weeks as like a, like a soft opening preview while the physical restaurant is built. Um, right now it's just going to stay in San Antonio, I guess for the rest of the year and then I'll hit the road next year. So I've never had Whataburger. I've seen it in some of the Texas airports, but never stopped to get it. Um, I've heard decent things about it. I mean, it's kind of in the same vein as like In-N-Out and Shake Shack. Um, it's just like In-N-Out's West Coast, Shake Shack's East Coast, like the Mississippi kind of divides the two. And then like Whataburgers in like the South. So, but yeah, I'll I'll definitely try it at some point. Um, But I've never had it. I don't know if Ben has. I'll have to ask him. He might have had it at some point. I know he's not a big Shake Shack person. He's more, he likes In-N-Out, if I remember correctly, he likes In-N-Out burgers better than Shake Shacks. Fries are garbage across the board. And then his kind of like hot take was that Five Guys is better than both of them, which I I actually do agree with. I've had Five Guys a couple times recently, and it is better. Like the Shake Shack burger is just kind of, it's got like, it's got like a cheese sauce kind of on it. So it's a little bit like cheesier um, kind of flavor where like Five Guys is more like just traditional burger flavor. And I mean, you can mix and match all the toppings and stuff like that, but um, yeah, I just think I think Five Guys is just like almost in a weird way, like a really good Whopper, but like even like a step up from that. So yeah, I would have to agree with his take that that Five Guys is probably the best out of out of the group so far. I did not like In and Out when I had it. I didn't think it was great. I don't get the hype at all. Um, the fries are definitely garbage. I didn't think the burger was very good either. So it's kind of weird when you hear all these like people out on the West Coast are like, oh, it's the best burger ever. And they got this secret menu that you got to know what to order. And it's like, nah, man, it's it's all garbage. Bourdain loved it. Like anytime I think Bourdain went to L.A., like the first thing he would do would be go and get like a animal style in and out burger. It was kind of like his first thing. So I'm just not a fan myself, but a um, couple other items here. So community fridges. So um, 
the Austin Free Fridge Project, they opened their first uh, community fridge this past week. It's operating uh, out of Nixta Takiera, which is on like the east side of the city. So the idea behind a community fridge um, is basically it's this place where people can go if they're in need of, you know, food and produce, they can go there. It's free of charge. Um, they can take what they need. And then people can also go and drop off items and donate them too as well. So the fridge is open 24-7. Like I said, it's for people who need f- food and items as well as like, um, like it's anything from fruits, vegetables, breads, frozen foods, prepared meals, uh, canned goods, PPE is included too as well because of the coronavirus. Um, and it's just, you know, for anybody who's looking to pick up or, or drop off or even donate any goods, uh, it's a pretty cool concept. Um, basically, it's, you know, designed to help fight food insecurity in kind of forgotten about areas, um, especially with, you know, the pandemic going on and everything too. So like volunteers maintain the fridge, um, you know, they'll, throw out any expired items that either get put in there accidentally or if, you know, an item's in there for a couple days and then expires, you know, they'll take that out. They keep it clean and sanitized and everything too as well. So, and make sure that's, you know, it's fully stocked. So um, even if like there's a day where people aren't really dropping stuff off, like the workers have stuff that they can put in there for people too as well that they either purchase through donations to the kind of foundation, the, the, the company, the project, cause they accept cash donations, but also, um, you know, if people are like, Hey, I, I think people can contact them too and be like, Hey, I, I have stuff I want to donate, but I don't know where that fridge is. And it's like on the other side of town, like, can I drop it off like halfway with you and stuff like that. So, um, it's a pretty cool concept. They actually had another, a separate group, open um launch their community fridge too as well so it's actually in houston uh it's in their third ward area um separate group though i guess it was a fundraiser by uh nina mayers you know she's trying to do the whole help feed you know food insecure residents too as well in the city um but they have another one that they started back in 2019 in uh, alvin which is a suburb of the city but you know, kind of same deal. She launched volunteer sign-up sheet. She actually has an Instagram account too as well. So it gives updates on um, kind of the fridge and then also any additional, you know, she's got upcoming fridges that she's going to put around the city too as well. So it'll all be kind of linked to that Instagram account. I don't know the name, but I'm sure it's going to be under like Houston Community Fridge or, or something like that. Um, I'm sure you can find it pretty easily, but yeah, I just think it's a cool concept. I think it's something that more cities should do. I mean, we have, you know, not that like leftovers or something that you should put in there, but like there's times where we'll buy stuff and we just never really get around to using it. And it's like, you know, I would like to donate, you know, if we had a loaf of bread that we didn't use, but there was like a week before it expired and we knew we weren't going to use it. Like, yeah, I'd like to be able to like, you know, walk to Franklinton or wherever and drop it off in the fridge. So somebody could use it. So like, I think that's a really cool concept. I think, you know, Dayton for certain, I know that the whole West side of Dayton is like a food desert, uh, just based on this podcast I listened to by, uh, 
the two guys who kind of lived in the area, the minimalist, uh, Joshua Fields, Milburn, and uh, Ryan Nicodemus. Um, that was kind of their project this year was to help create like a farmer's market for the West side because all they had was like convenience stores. I guess there was no actual grocery store on the West side of Dayton. I don't know. I haven't listened to their podcast in a little while, so I don't know how, where they're at with that. And then the pandemic happened too as well. So that might've messed stuff up for them, but I'm sure they'll follow through with it. I mean, they do one big project a year and, and they always get it done. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, community fridges, like, those should be kind of all over the place. Like even in Columbus, like they, they should be all over the place. Um, you know, you can have a graffiti artist kind of paint the outside. So, you, you know, it's an art artist installation too, as well. And, and I don't think it's, you know, too expensive for places to, to kind of come up with. It's, it's about finding like quality volunteers who are actually going to like, if they sign up for, you know, a 9 AM on a, Sunday like they're actually going to follow through with it to go and check the fridge and make sure it's clean and it's working and, and stuff like that too so um yeah I hope hopefully you know more of that stuff kind of happens and hopefully it makes its way up here I mean that'd be something that'd be cool to to kind of start um I think uh according to the the Austin story she reached out to was it, I think it was like somebody in like New York maybe Brooklyn I feel like, and they had a whole lot of just like documentation about like how you, this is how you want to set it up and all this stuff too as well. So she was kind of able to get to, to fast track, but, and then the only other story, uh, out of Texas over in kind of the Dallas Fort Worth area, Mabruka, which apparently was like one of this areas, you know, kind of the city, um, or cities, if you want to call them both cities, uh, and not lump them together. I guess it was one of the only Egyptian restaurants in the area and they had to close um, permanently just some maintenance and electrical issues that they've been battling over the past couple of weeks and just got to the point where they can't afford to fix it and it's too severe to be able to, you know, patchwork to make it by. So that restaurant has, has closed too as well. And, and that was it for the Texas news. Um, moving over to San Francisco. So uh, a couple of stories out of the Bay Area. Uh, Anthony Strong uh, is a chef owner. He just opened, uh, well, he didn't. He just opened it like a year ago. It was called Prairie, uh, and he had to, to close the restaurant. So apparently him and his dad like built the entire kind of dining room and rehabbed it and, you know, did the interior stuff. It was, but he put like everything I guess he had into the restaurant saved a bunch of money for a year, whatever savings he had, he put that into it too as well. Um, and it's just got taken down by the coronavirus. He converted it to a grocery store, you know, kind of general store style thing, but sales fell off. And, you know, now that kind of like some of the supply chains have been repaired for, you know, distribution into grocery stores and stuff, there's not as many people going to kind of the makeshift pantry situations at different restaurants that they kind of pivoted to. Um, it's kind of all depends on where you at in location too as well. But, um, yeah, it just, he had to shut it down. It's just, he, he wasn't able to continue it and, you know, not knowing when in restaurant dining is going to open San Francisco again, wasn't going to work. Um, he, I guess he's already got ideas for what he's going to do next, 
but he did say he's not going to rely on any third-party delivery just because of how much money that they take. And then also he's not going to do the ghost kitchen model. Uh, I guess he did the ghost kitchen thing previously, kind of like the front end. And it was a bit of a nightmare in terms of quality and everything. So he's not going to do that. But sounds like he'll be back. He's got a plan, but it just kind of sucks. Like, you know, you put everything you had into this and then you just catch a shitty break with the pandemic. And, and now you're out of business and you dumped all that money into it. But um, just unfortunate couple openings though um and a bit of news of note so hashiri which is a sushi and kaiseki restaurant in san francisco i guess they also have a location in tokyo they bought uh like three of those plastic bubbles kind of like those they almost look like a clear giant half a golf ball with like the hexagonal squares um so they're going to be able to do some outdoor dining and they're going to still be able to do their omakase menu. Um, they were offering, I guess, like bento boxes for a while, but they saw like an 80% drop in business. So they spent, you know, they spent like five grand on some bubbles. And that way they can get some dining on the pat, you know, on the sidewalk essentially um, and start kind of getting back to making some, some money and being able to pay some bills and stuff. So, that was pretty interesting. I think there's a lot of places that are going to pivot to that too as well. Cause those are temporary structures and you can also put like a heater in there too as well. I know out here we had Vaso in Dublin. They did it last year, um, on their kind of roof deck. They put the bubbles out there. Now the only problem is that Vaso's food's garbage. Um, and a lot of people did it because it was like a cool thing to post on Instagram. It seemed like, but there was also a minimum, uh, there was like a minimum spend and that correlated to how long you were able to be in the, the bubble before you had to leave too. So not in, you know, the case for this restaurant here, but, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if more places kind of get the bubble things and have to incorporate stuff like that too. So, uh, Kin Cow, which is a Thai restaurant. I've actually been to it. Uh, there is a page on the spoon mob website. So check that out. Um, it's owned by Pim. I'm not even going to try and say her last name because I'll butcher it. Um, she is, she opened Kin Cow. She used to be kind of a food blogger. Um, and then she basically opened a restaurant, started learning from the chefs in the restaurant and is now basically like a, a chef herself. She, uh, has Kin Cow Neri, which is in, uh, Japantown area, I believe. And then she's also got a restaurant that she took over over in Bangkok, um, too, as well. And then there's something last year she opened in the San Francisco airport, too. So she's got like four different businesses. She uh, is going to open a fast, casual, kind of pared down version of Kinkau. It's going to be in the Dog Patch neighborhood of San Francisco. Kinkau itself has been closed since the start of the pandemic. Um, just cause union square doesn't really have any people like that's kind of a shopping area. It's a bunch of stores and stuff and nobody's shopping. So there's no people in the area and there's not a whole lot of foot traffic. Uh, so they're not even doing takeout there, but, um, she's going to take over this cafe, uh, that they were basically done. Uh, and I guess they were already in talks kind of with, with her taking over the rest of the lease, but. Um, she just wound up signing like a one-year lease with the the building's landlord, essentially. 
and it's mostly going to be like to go. It'll have some of kind of the Kinkau menu favorites are going to be on there too as well. Um, and she's going to try it out and see how it goes. And if it goes well for the year, you know, probably keep the location and, or at least stay in the area and, um, you know, maybe even extend the lease is kind of what she was saying. So I like Kinkau. Um, I don't, I would go there if I lived in the city. Yes, I would go there frequently if, but on a visit, um, like if I go back to San Francisco, is that going to be on like my list of places to go? No, I'm probably going to try either new things or go back to some of the places that like we really, really enjoyed, but the food is good there. I mean, like the rabbit curry is fantastic. Um, it's, you know, authentic Thai food. Some of it can be really hot too as well, but, um, definitely would recommend it. You know, it's kind of in that same vein as at least in my mind is Al's place. It's a really good restaurant. It's casual. It's got great food. Is it a place that you're going to specifically go back to the city for? No, but if you're in the city and you're looking for like, you just want something that's, you don't really have to think too hard or it's not too fancy or, um, you know, it's not super expensive either as well. And you just want kind of good food. Like those are the places that you would want to hit up. Um, are those kind of two places. And the other story out of San Francisco, Belinda Long and Michael or Michelle Suas. Um, so they're the owners of B Petisserie, which is kind of that, that bakery in the city. Um, one of the famous ones, it's kind of like them. Tartine um, are kind of the two main ones. Uh, there's a third one that the name is just slipping. Um, yeah, I can't remember. But um, there's a page. There's a page on the the website for B Petisserie. Uh, it's under the notable restaurants list. Um, we got a box of stuff uh, like a day before we drove up to Napa from the city. And then that was kind of like our breakfast for like two, three days. So we just got a whole bunch of stuff. And it's, it's all really good. She's known for Queen Amon's, that kind of pastry is what uh, she's known for. But uh, back in 2008, they announced that they were going to open a French restaurant nearby uh it's kind of on this like the same block and they finally opened so um the executive chef is john paul carmona he used to actually be over at manresa and he was kind of the cdc there for a while and um, they're just going to be starting off with kind of a slim down menu mostly doing takeout right now until the city eases kind of dine-in restrictions but um it's been like two years in the making and, and they finally opened so um, it'll be interesting to see kind of what more comes out about it in terms of what style of food. It's kind of tough to get a judge off of like them doing takeout, but, um, you know, I'm sure it'll pop up on Instagram and, and they'll cross promote it. So you get kind of a, at least a visual aid as to the style of food, but sliding down, uh, the coast to LA. So as I mentioned last week, Ray Garcia closed Broken Spanish. This week, his takeout to go concept, Mila, which means made in LA, um, that officially opened. It's delivery only, Takiera. So right now, it only delivers to the downtown area, but he's going to expand it to be across the city. And then also, the menu will expand too as well. So right now, I think it's just like six tacos and then a bunch of sides that you can choose from. So the menu will expand too as well. 
and he's thinking about utilizing like some ghost kitchen situations in the, in the future too, to help expand the reach, um, of potential delivery and stuff like that for the customer base. So that is officially opened if you're in the LA area and looking for, you know, some delivery tacos. Um, his food looks really good. I'm sure the tacos are great. I think there's a pretty big taco food scene. I mean, I shouldn't say, I think I know there is even without having been to LA, you know, formally. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know how, how long that, like where it's going to rank and like the, with all the competition and everything like that. But, um, I guess they'll find out. So, uh, creature comforts brewing, which is actually out of Athens, Georgia. Uh, they announced that they're going to open a brewery in kind of the downtown area. It's the city market South neighborhood kind of, um, that's going to open next year. Kind of similar to the brewery that I mentioned, uh, that's going into DC there. Uh, other half brewing. So they're based out of a different area, but they're expanding to another marketplace. They're going to open a giant tap room and a giant production facility. And kind of that way they have, at least in their case, they're going to have like a West coast and an East coast kind of flagship, even though they're in Athens. Whereas the, the place in Brooklyn, I mean, they're just major markets. They're going to be DC, you know, and New York. So two different kind of strategies, expansion strategies playing out, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like a cool concept. I've never had their beer. So, I mean, it's all going to be dependent upon that, but, um, that was kind of, kind of some positive news. And then, uh, this morning I just saw this. So Eric Boast, he was the chef and owner of Auburn, which was like this new restaurant. It was only open for like a year, but it was, you know, it got, Michelin star, like he was nominated for James Beard awards. Like it was, you know, one of the 10, 20 restaurants that, you know, best new restaurants in LA. And also like one of the places that, you know, you had to go and visit just cause it was, you know, this new cool thing that was also, you know, pretty innovative too as well. So he had to close that back in April. Um, the issue being coronavirus essentially. Um, so he is going to be moving to San Diego and taking over as executive chef at June at Jolie. Um, so him and I guess the owner of the restaurant, John Resnick, they kind of have a similar vibe in terms of culinary style and, you know, how they envision a restaurant working and all that stuff. So, uh, he's going to be replacing Andrew Bacalier, who actually, I guess, left the restaurant back in July. Um, so he's supposed to start in September and, um, yeah, June Jolie like looks like a cool restaurant already. So I'm sure with the addition of him, you know, kind of giving the menu a little bit of a kick too, it'll, it might turn into kind of something pretty special in the San Diego area. So that was it for LA. Um, just a bunch of kind of random one-off stories here. So we'll just burn through these. So. Over in Minneapolis, uh, Gandhi Mahal, which I'm not sure if maybe you might remember this name or, or kind of caught it, but this was the Indian restaurant that um, got burned down during the protests and the riots from uh, George Floyd's death back in June. So the um, the owner, uh, which is Rule Islam, 
he's kind of was quoted famously saying, you know, let my building burn, justice need to be served, make sure you put the police officers in jail. Um, he's rebuilding the restaurant, but he's found a temporary space over in the Seward neighborhood. And I guess he has also has like a food truck too component. So that's going to basically be out front and be like the primary kitchen. And then the spot that they're taking over, uh, which was formerly called the chef shack, they're going to use that kitchen as just kind of to assist and augment. And while, um, the main restaurant is, is being rebuilt. So, um, positive news story, like good for him, you know, being able to rebuild his restaurant and everything. Um, so if you're in Minneapolis and you're looking for some Indian food and want to support the guy, uh, he's got a new location and I'm sure could use all the support from the community while, uh, he rebuilds the restaurant downtown over in, uh, Boston. So the Boston licensing board is requiring owners of restaurants with large outdoor dining areas, as well as any restaurant located in the Alston Brighton area to attend emergency hearings due to social distancing complaints that have been levied against various establishments. Um, I guess they had to do this once before for like the North end restaurants, but it's just people complaining like, and most of the stuff's not even really egregious. Like it's not people, you know, not wearing masks or slammed into spaces, but it's like, it's mostly has to do with lines on the sidewalk where everything's going on inside fine but like outside people are standing too close together there's too many people um or maybe because people are outside in a line they're not wearing masks like it's stuff like that so i guess basically you know if you don't if you're told to attend one of the emergency hearings and you don't like you potentially could have your licensing pulled so thought that was kind of interesting but that was really the only kind of news story out of boston um over in New Orleans, Commander's Palace, which is like a famous restaurant um, in New Orleans, they came out and announced that they're going to lay off 240 employees and only retain a few key management jobs. Arnaud's, which is like another big time kind of upscale restaurant there too as well, they announced that they're going to lay off 150 people. Um, it's just all due to the coronavirus pandemic. You know, they have pretty strict restrictions. Um in New Orleans from the mayor and then also the governor, like bars are shut down and all this stuff too. So they're not going to really see any tourism probably for like the rest of the year. And some of these layoffs, I guess can kind of go back to March, but they have to announce them through, I forget the name of kind of the rule, but it's like, if you're going to lay anybody off to the pandemic, like you have to make a formal announcement and submit like a paperwork to this temporary agency or whatever. So that was kind of them doing that. Over in Vegas, uh, Sean McLean's restaurant Sage, uh, which was inside the Aria Hotel, that is closed. Been around for 10 years. It sounds like it was just kind of an agreement between him and um, his restaurant group and then the, the hotel. It's been around for 10 years and they wanted to change it up. And 10 years is roughly the kind of the limit for a Vegas restaurant on the strip inside a casino. Like, I mean, they turn over those concepts and, and normally like, unsuccessful ones just kind of turn themselves over. But every once in a while, it's like, all right, it's been here for 10 years. Like people have wanted to eat here. I've eaten here, stuff like that. Like, let's kind of do something new. So I guess that restaurant, um, you know, he was best chef Midwest in 2006, uh, for a restaurant that he had, I think out in, um, I think it was, no, it wasn't Chicago. 
where would he, he would have been St. Louis maybe or something. Not sure, but uh, he has won a James Beard award, but the restaurant was famous for, I guess the menu changing with the seasons, which at the time was kind of like being on the forefront. Um, that's pretty well established now within the restaurant industry and most restaurants, you know, ingredients and the menu changes, you know, at least four times a year. But it also had like an absinthe cart, I guess, too, as well, that they would uh, wheel around the dining room. So that place is closed. Uh, over in Detroit, I guess it's kind of a Michigan as a whole, but the Michigan Farm Bureau has filed a lawsuit against the uh, executive order from the governor that uh, there's mandatory testing for all farm workers. And basically it's to try and prevent any spread with farm workers and also any sort of uh, like meat packing plants or anything like that. And so the Farm Bureau is saying that it violates the workers' civil rights because it's targeting the Latino community. I disagree with that. I I don't think they're targeting the Latino community. Um, just because a lot of Latinos work on farms or in meatpacking plants doesn't mean that they're specifically being targeted especially when you can reference the Smithfield outbreak in like Iowa or whatever, when they had like, boy, was it? I think it was like 70% of the workforce, like all came down with the COVID. So yeah, I just think they're trying to mitigate the spread on that one. I don't think they're really targeting anybody, but, um, but that's the lawsuit that they filed. So, and then uh, down in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, the Anchorage, which I've been to uh, talked about on a podcast, like two weeks ago. Um, there's a page up on the website too for it. But uh, Greg McPhee came out and is launching Taxi House Wines uh, later this month in August. So basically it's going to be like a little storefront um, in kind of where the original entryway was for the Anchorage. And they converted that entryway to kind of the pickup area for the online marketplace that they were doing, which was to-go meals, um, meal prep kits, pantry items, um, all sorts of stuff that they started doing once coronavirus hit. Um, so it's just going to be a, like a wine extension off that. So you can go and buy, um, you know, like a little retail store. You can buy bottles of wine. Um, so that's going to start before the end of the month, essentially. And that was uh, it for for national news, not much in Ohio, just a couple stories. Uh, nothing in Cleveland again. Cleveland's been pretty quiet. Uh, over in Cincinnati, Westside Brewing, they released Braille Ale, which is a raspberry goza. And apparently it's one of the first cans in America to feature raised Braille on the outside, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. I've never seen any can have any sort of Braille Beer bottles, yes, I believe that's what it was, but I'm not entirely. That could also be just a something from the glass mold, but I think like right where it expands from the neck into kind of the base of the bottle, like that part, there's always like a few dots. So I think that might be Braille, but not 100% certain. But in terms of like aluminum cans, I've never seen it on an aluminum can whatsoever. So. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, I don't understand why more places don't have Braille on aluminum cans. I mean, I don't know how much of the population is blind, but um, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it costs really that much to have it imprinted on the aluminum. It's just a little 
little thing that you just got to add in there. So just a stamper or something like that, or you can probably put it in the, in the rolling mold or whatever too. So I don't know, but I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, Braxton brewing, which I'm a big fan of, as I've mentioned, they came out and, uh, have released a pumpkin spice hard seltzer. So for all the college kids and all the, I think the running joke is always like all the white girls that love the pumpkin spice latte. So that's kind of targeting that audience there. I'm not a seltzer person. I don't, I don't like the hard seltzers. I don't really like regular seltzer. I don't like, uh, Pellegrino, like the fuzzy, like it's just carbonated water. Like I don't, I don't like any of that stuff. So it's not really for me, but I'm also not the target demographic on that either. So, um, Deer Restaurant and Butchery uh, opened this week. It's actually in the Hyde Park Square area inside the um, former Teller's space. So the menu, it's kind of a butcher shop, and then they have a little small menu of like charcuterie, sandwiches, coffee, soft serve ice cream, some beer and wine. But like the butcher cut, like they have Wagyu there, uh, high quality beef and pork, local lamb, local chicken stuff like that too. So they just opened. So it's a, you know, you can get a bunch of cuts of meat and kind of grab a, a sandwich to go or hang out and drink a glass of wine and get a charcuterie board. So, um, interesting concept, but I think you'll see stuff like that too, as well. Kind of dual concept stuff. A lot of the places that started doing kind of the marketplaces and pantry stuff, I think they're going to try and figure out a way to keep that. Um, just as another revenue stream to help offset, any losses from distancing out tables or just consumer apprehension for coming back into a restaurant, stuff like that too. So uh, nostalgia wine and jazz lounge is going to open next week in over the Rhine. Um, it's just basically, I mean, it's exact. The name is exactly what it is. It's old school jazz music and a wine bar. And most of the wine is going to be from women and minority winemakers, according to the owner. And finally, Pontiac OTR was that barbecue restaurant that closed a couple weeks back. Uh, They were pivoting concepts, just it didn't, it wasn't working because they had to smoke so much meat like in advance. And then you never knew if you were going to sell out or whatever. So they're pivoting to, um, they've reopened and it's basically primarily focused on chicken wings and tiki drinks or kind of the the two things. So um, I'd be interested in trying trying that. I mean, I was kind of interested in kind of their barbecue before them, but if they pivoted to chicken wings, it's always tough to, we were talking, Ben and I were talking about this. It's always hard to find good chicken wings uh, for whatever reason. Like, I mean, we have some wing chains here, like wing stop. I think there's like wings over Columbus. What's the other one? Wings and rings is another one, but they're all kind of garbage. They're just not great. I mean, the best chicken wings I've had are usually at like restaurants that just run them as like a special for like a limited time. Veritas, Rock Mill has good wings, adobo wings, which are a little bit spicy because I think they're Indonesian. Um, Who else has had good chicken wings? Spec, we got chicken wings from there too. So like, yeah, it's always restaurants that we're getting chicken wings from when they're on the menu, not just specific chicken wing places. So hopefully it's good. And, um, only two things out of Columbus. We had a water boil alert for like about a day this week that has since passed. 
Um, they did a bad job with it. Didn't really, it kind of briefly made the news, but like a lot of people were, were complaining that, you know, they send out COVID-19 updates through text message, but they won't send out, you know, you need to boil your water if you live in this area. It was basically the entire downtown area. Like it was Grandview, Short North, Brewery District, part of German Village, part of Franklinton was included too. Um, there was a power outage at like the Dublin water plant. So they just wanted everybody to be safe. So we had to do that for like a day. It was like, what, four o'clock on a when four o'clock on like a Tuesday. And then it ended at roughly four o'clock on the Wednesday kind of, um, see that was kind of the main thing. So if you didn't know about it and you live in Columbus and you listen to this podcast, you, and you were in that area, you don't have to boil your water anymore. And, uh, the only other thing in Columbus was lineage brewing up in Clintonville is, uh, started to sell their beer in cans now. So, um, if you're a fan of them, you can pick up like a, a four pack. I think it's kind of the same vein as like platform does, but that's it for the food news podcast this week. Um, yeah, it was kind of a slower news week, but, uh, Check out the other podcasts. Appreciate everybody listening. Like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, uh, I think a, a wine podcast that me and Ben did will run on Wednesday. If uh, the Libya episode doesn't get recorded this weekend, I just, I don't think it's going to. I think he's going to Nashville for the weekend and I myself am going to be out of town for like a day and a half. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, it'll be an off week run that. It's a good podcast. I, I went back and had to make sure all the levels and everything were good on it. So, uh, it's kind of in the same style almost. It, it gets off the rails a little bit, but it stays more on track with food. It doesn't go all over the place. Like the, uh, the one-off episode that, uh, we put out yesterday, which was just, we recorded that one after the Morocco episode. We were just both kind of like, because we didn't like the Moroccan episode and we were just kind of down in the dumps a little bit. So we were just like, yeah, let's just talk about everything. <laughs> and we just kind of, you know, so we might do some more of those just every once in a while too as well. Um, you know, there's no set schedule for those. Just kind of whenever we feel like just randomness to talk about. But, um, but yeah, those are kind of the major updates. So check that pod out. You had, you know, four pods this week. Um, you know, back to the normal three next week, you know, Mabel gray got released the Anchorage. Uh, I'm not sure what restaurant review is coming out on Monday. Haven't decided on that yet, but, um, that'll pop in the feed early Monday morning goes up at like 1am on Mondays. So if you're working like third shift or something, check it out, but otherwise it'll be in your feed in the morning. Uh, then Wednesday we'll have the, probably do the wine podcast and then double up on the parts now known the following week for Libya and Peru. And then, uh, Friday will be another episode of food news. Um, but yeah, uh, that's kind of what's going on. Appreciate everybody listening. Give us a follow on Instagram, help spread the word or trying to get to, uh, whatever the amount of subscribers that Alyssa Milano has, we're trying to beat that number. I think it's somewhere in like the 3000 neighborhood. So we got a long ways to go, but, uh, that's kind of our own goal is to beat her numbers. So then she can complain that not only does Joe Rogan have more subscribers, but also spoon mob does, 
which I think would be pretty hilarious. So spread the word um, to all your friends and stuff. Tell them to just check out the podcast. Like even if they're not into the food news podcast, there's restaurant reviews, um, the parts now known series too, as well, which is, you know, I think most everybody would like. And then, you know, we have some one-off randomness too in there that if you just want to hear two people complain about the upcoming election and wokeness and too much social justice warrior type syndrome and stuff and, and cancellation of college football and like all this stuff in between, like, you know, it's just two people just having a conversation about everything that you would probably have a conversation about at like a, a dinner table if it was like Thanksgiving or something like that. So it's kind of in that vein, but uh, yeah, help, help spread the word so we can uh, beat Alyssa Milano, but um, send in feedback, question comments through the website too, as well. New pages are up on the website. Uh, John, Jungsik, which is a Korean restaurant in New York City. That page is up. Um, Nada here in Columbus that we went to last weekend for the first time. It's Mexican, which um, we really enjoyed. That page is up. Um, Morad, which is a Moroccan restaurant out in San Francisco. That page is new. And Mita's in Cincinnati, which is a Spanish Latin America restaurant uh, by Jose Salazar. Um, it's one of the better restaurants that they have in the city. I mean, it's like, it's always in the top 10, um, on their annual rankings. And he's been nominated for like James Beard awards for like four out of the last five years. So that is up to as well. And, uh, I think the next one that'll be coming up probably sometime in the next week will be Aquavit, which is like the Scandinavian restaurant in New York city. Um, so working on that page now and that'll be dropping too. So Keep an eye out on the website and uh, our Instagram feed where we kind of announce all that stuff. Usually push out a, a photo whenever a new page goes live. So appreciate everybody, uh, as I've said multiple times at this point. And uh, enjoy the weekend, and we'll talk to you guys later.